Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Thinking Commercially podcast. It's the business podcast that helps students, recent graduates, with their commercial awareness, with their business acumen, and covers all the fantastic stories that you need to know about and commercial trends. We are, as always, joined by the wonderful Chris Stokes, who is an author and general commercial awareness guru. He will be giving his insights, as always, on these key stories. We'll be covering London's IPO market as it hots up this summer, taxing the big tech firms and what happened in Cornwall at the G7, the future of commercial property. And we'll also delve a little bit into and give an interesting opinion on Cristiano Ronaldo moving that bottle of Coca-Cola at a press conference. Listen to this and more in this episode. Hello to you, Chris. How is everything been going over the last few weeks? Hello, Ben. Yes, things are things are going well. The weather's been great. Uh, it's also rained a bit, but generally good. Looking forward to when we're finally allowed out for good. Really looking forward to that. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, things are good. What about you? Yeah, pretty good. Um, thanks. Yeah, I agree. Like we've gone straight to the weather again. Like we had a nice little spell, didn't we? And if you're based in the UK. Um, but yeah, been watching a whole lot of uh, football um, lately with the the Euros on. I hope uh, hope everyone's been enjoying. I hope everyone's teams are, are doing okay into the uh, the last round as we uh, as we uh, as we record this. I think uh, the um, the last sixteen has been decided, so all those fixtures are are ready to go. Have you been following at all, Chris? I know you're you're a Brentford fan, aren't you? I, I am. I am a bees fan. I've been following it a little bit. Uh, England finally seems to be kind of getting underway but luckily for everyone else this isn't another peter crouch style or football style podcast i'm sure there's um hundreds and thousands that you can be listening to at the moment um but this is the podcast that you want to be listening to if you're a current student recent graduate or just interested in the business world we're covering uh, three stories each month can we get a bonus fourth story we're going to be heading back to the euros for um talking a little bit about coca-cola and the now infamous a little incident uh, with um, Cristiano Ronaldo moving a couple of uh, Coca-Cola bottles and causing a uh, huge storm across uh, the business media and uh, everything like um, that. But yeah, we've got some really fantastic stories uh, today, some really interesting stuff. Um, If you ever want to follow the stories a little bit more, you can check out us on um, Instagram, on LinkedIn. We always add in a little bit of flavor around the episode um, and uh, it gives you a little bit of nice uh, narrative around uh, what me and Chris are going to be talking about. Um, Yeah, keep coming in with your questions. Um, You might remember on the last couple of episodes, we've had students um, who have submitted their questions. Um, If I'm really honest, I wasn't quite as on it this month. Um, We've got something big called Internship Experience UK uh, that's starting um, next week. So um, I haven't been quite as on it with the member questions and stuff like that. I've seen a few people have sent some things in. We will get you onto the podcast next week with your questions. Chris, I think there's nothing left to do other than get cracking with the first story. Are you raring to go? Absolutely. So the first story that we're going to cover this week is about London's IPO or initial public offering market at the moment. It's um, really hot at the moment. There's a lot of activity um, happening. The main story that would have been dominating the headlines in this space over the last couple of weeks has been 
the wise or the potential for a wise um, IPO, a really massive um, fintech uh, IPO. They were the company that was originally uh, transfer wise, um, sending money kind of abroad and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, Chris, I wanted to kick off. Why is the London IPO market um, a hot topic of conversation at the moment? And then I, I guess on the flip side, there's this idea that like lots of money is going to be uh, is ready for investment. So maybe you could uh, give us a little indication on both of those. Well, the thing about um, IPOs, and rather confusingly, the term initial public offering is the same as going public, listing, floating, all of these things are the same thing. It's basically private companies going public. Um, IPOs are one of the most visible bits of London's financial markets. The other visible bit are mergers and acquisitions, M&As. And in fact, when you take the two together, IPOs and M&As, that's what people call corporate finance. So IPOs are, are, are eye-catching, they're newsworthy, and they're regarded as a kind of bellwether of how well the London financial markets are doing. Are they attracting a lot of new companies uh, that, that, that want to list? Um, and for the London Stock Exchange, uh, as for any stock market, it likes new companies coming along to list because listed companies, public companies, they themselves are taken over. Sometimes they, they go out of business. And so the London Stock Exchange is always looking to replenish the list of, of public companies. I, I think the other factors that have contributed to, to it's being talked about so much, well, first of all, we're, we're still post-Brexit. There's still the question of how will London use the freedom from EU regulation to attract more business. There was Lord Hill's review commissioned by, by the government. And also with, with the WISE IPO, it's kind of crossed over into fintech. And this idea that London is very much uh, a center for fintech. Um, so I, I, think, I think it's kind of the confluence of all of those factors coming together. Amazing. And um, just to give some context, we did cover it in about three episodes time, but if you haven't listened to it, definitely um, go back and have a look through that Lord Hill's uh, report, the, one of the big recommendations about making London more competitive, that basically was the report, was the uh, dual class share structure. So um, owners or people, high up, high up executives in the, in the business to own a lot of shares. Uh, can have different shares from those that they are newly listing. So they have greater voting rights and can gain a little bit more control. So it makes it more, more attractive, especially to those kind of young tech companies tend to be the ones that um, do like having that more uh, flexibility around their share structure. Um, talking of the WISE uh, IPO specifically, um, because basically what's really being talked about in the business um, press is that they're going for a direct listing which basically means that they're not raising capital, but they're going public. First of all, what's the difference between a direct listing and maybe a more traditional IPO? And I guess the second part is why would WISE go down that route? Um, with a traditional IPO, it's quite an involved and expensive process. It takes about 18 months for a private company to prepare itself to be a public company. And that's often because it doesn't have the necessary infrastructure in place. It might still be very much a founder-led business. It doesn't have functions like marketing, HR, tech, accounting. And investors expect a business that they're going to invest in to be quite mature. So part of the IPO process is preparing a company to become a public company. 
part, part of it is to raise new capital. So often companies list in order to tap a wider shareholder base in order to attract more capital and to ensure that they will raise the money that they expect to on the day they list. Those issues of fresh shares tend to be underwritten. In other words, uh, the financial advisors helping the company float agree to buy the shares if on that particular day, uh, the market isn't terribly welcoming. And all of that adds an enormous amount of cost. Now, contrast that with direct listing, where a company says, this is who we are, this is how we're organized, this is what we're doing. If you wanna buy into us, that's the proposition. So as you said, Ben, they're not raising new money, so there's no underwriting, so there are no underwriting fees. They're, they're not really trying to make themselves particularly appealing in the way that a private company uh, uh, that, that is relatively young might. And in the case of Wise, they're saying we're an established business, uh, what you see is what you get. Um, and some of our existing shareholders are making shares available uh, for new shareholders to buy if, if they want to. And the business tomorrow will be no different from the business as it was yesterday. So uh, it's very much saying, and it's a, it's a pretty confident statement for a business to say, we don't need, the, we don't need to raise new capital. We don't need underwriting. Um, we're confident that when we make these shares available, people out there will want to buy them. It's a pretty confident statement. You've got to be quite an established, confident business to do that. But it means that the internal disruption in doing that is kept to a minimum. And the kind of the, the admin hassle of dealing with accountants and lawyers is kept, kept to a minimum. And the actual cost is kept to a minimum as well. And, and it's a much quicker process. So a couple of months ago, you might have heard of the Deliveroo IPO going a little bit wrong with the company um, significantly dropping in value on the first few days of uh, trading on the London Stock Exchange. However, I was reading somewhere that over the last year or so, for companies that have done an IPO, they're up on average about 26%. Obviously, the market at the moment is uh, buoyant. If you bought shares in basically any FTSE 100 company or across the markets over the last, if you bought it this time last year and looking at it now, the markets have definitely risen. And there's that feeling that the markets are doing well. There's lots of new money coming into the markets. This feels like a good sign for the economy. This feels like a really promising sign across the economy and, and for individuals that are trying to make money in it. I think, I think that's absolutely right, Ben. I mean, markets are always looking ahead. And so what the markets are doing is thinking we're almost out of the pandemic. Uh, there's a huge amount of pent up demand, people wanting to get back to what they were doing. And so the market has been rising as a result. And if you're going to do an IPO uh, or a direct listing, you want to do it into a rising market when there is, in the way that there's pent up de demand on, on the consumer side, in a sense, there's pent up demand on the financial side as well. You know, institutional investors have got money that they want to invest. Um, now that they can see that things are beginning to improve, they want to get their money in, into the market. And of course, companies for their part, they, they want to raise more capital, uh, both to recover um, from the pandemic and also to exploit the opportunities that, that might arise. And it also coincides with, I think a lot of private equity investors 
they, they, they've probably nurtured their investee businesses over the last two or three years, gotten through the pandemic, and they're kind of looking for an exit strategy. They're thinking this would be a good time to sell, uh, realize our gain, reinvest that in, in other businesses. And, and the last factor, which sounds a bit odd, but can't really be ignored, is financial markets are also prone to fads and fashions, much like everything else. So uh, a while ago, there was a lot of concern that that most, most startups, most fintechs were being privately funded by private equity, venture capital. Uh, a lot of these, these unicorns, businesses worth a, a billion dollars that are still private, they hadn't come to market where the public market's being starved of companies to invest in. And now, of course, there are lots of companies coming to market. So, so the financial markets are, are, are not themselves immune to this idea of things being in fashion and, and things are very cyclical as well. And so all of that's come together to make it a very buoyant market, a good market in which to, uh, to list if, if you're a, a company that's not yet gone public. Yeah, completely agree. There's one final thing. I don't want to put a dampener on this because we've, as I say, as always, very positive about the the, the future of the markets, future of uh, the the UK economy. Um, but there was a comment by Rishi Sunak, the um, UK Chancellor, um, I think a few days ago, um, about the potential to have new powers to block um, IPOs, which uh, from companies which might threaten national security. Um, Chris, is there? much significance to this i think obviously as we've sort of talked about before we're trying to find our place in sort of a post-brexit sort of uh, world is this largely down to that or do you think that there's just geopolitical events now which mean that uh, we need to pay more attention to those sort of issues that's a really good point ben i, I think it's a bit of everything i, I think it's the realization that um geopolitics uh, does have an impact on business governments all over the world are looking very closely at, at uh, who they contract with to provide services. But certainly the, the UK has generally not been an interventionist market. And if you compare the UK with France, the French government has always had extensive powers to step in and, and stop takeovers in, in the national interest. That's generally not been the case in the UK. Um, certainly uh, the big uh, wave of privatizations in the 80s and 90s, the way the UK government kept a degree of control was by having a golden share. So it had a special status as a shareholder in the business that was being privatized. So markets generally do not like the threat of government interference, especially if it's kind of a bit inchoate, if it's a bit fuzzy. They Because the idea of governments reserving the right to intervene but without specifying the base on which they're going to do it that that kind of puts people off because you never know in advance what the rules are likely to be so i i i must admit i i think his comments were much more geopolitically motivated saying this is the world we're in now rather than being more specific about there are particular sectors where we really are going to step in and and upset uh, the market as it were Really interesting stuff. I hope you enjoyed listening to that first story and uh, let's move on. The next story that we are going to cover revolves around big tech firms and how international governments can tax them effectively. So it has been, well, for 
years and years it's been um something on the agenda there's often front page articles business articles about how um how difficult it is potentially to tax these big tech firms and how they are potentially not paying um enough tax or people believe they're not paying enough tax in um certain jurisdictions and certain countries uh, where they operate and sell a significant proportion of their tech so you might have seen some very sort of glamorous looking photos about two weeks ago in the very sunny Cornwall where um, G7 leaders um, met. But one thing on the agenda, there was a couple of uh, little things about Brexit and sausages. But one of the big things on the agenda was the climate change stuff. Um, and the second thing was this issue around um taxing um, technology companies. So international governments are all looking to work together and work with these technology companies to come up with a solution, which means that they can pay fair tax across the world, pay tax in the places that they operate in. Um, And tech firms can't utilize tax havens quite as effectively to avoid paying tax and having headquarters in certain countries where they potentially avoid paying higher rates of tax compared to those where they're actually selling the goods in. First question, um, Chris, just to kind of set the scene, um, why do countries, individuals, businesses, uh, or other businesses believe that big tech firms aren't quite paying enough tax? I think it's because they're an easy target. Um, They're very much in the business to consumer area so the, these are these are names that we're very very familiar with, and they pervade our lives. And they've got big very quickly, and they are uh, very wealthy businesses, and they seem to make a lot of money. And so I think for for that reason, they they are representative in kind of the populist mind of big business not not paying tax that's the kind of the narrative um i mean the the thing about tax is that this may sound odd but businesses pay the tax that the law requires them to pay and it's always been incumbent on governments to change the rules if they want businesses to pay more tax it's just like us as individuals you know once you're in a job you're not going to willingly pay more tax than you have to you're going to pay the tax that the rules require you to pay and that's essentially what businesses do absolutely and there's this idea that the tax system at the moment is outdated and therefore that's where tech firms as you say completely legally completely in their absolute their own right to do um are Maybe playing the system is a bit strong, but the, the the system they can work in their favor is probably a better way of saying saying it. So when people talk about the tax laws and tax systems being outdated, what, what do they mean by that? Tax law is really quite strange. It's outdated because tax systems are really designed for businesses that are very visible in terms of where they make their goods and where they sell them. And the thing about uh, tech businesses is that they provide a service, they don't manufacture goods. And it's really difficult to pinpoint where that service is actually delivered. So in that sense, the, the tax system is designed for traditional manufacturing businesses, and it's really not very good at addressing uh, tech firms that provide services that are invisible and are provided 
uh, anywhere. But that there's another way in which tax law generally is, is quite strange. And that is that it is very country specific. Countries compete with each other to attract businesses by offering lower tax rates and they keep the tax take for themselves. So countries are in competition with each other and um, they don't really generally enforce each other's tax laws. It's, it's quite rare for tax laws to be enforced in one country on, on behalf of another. So what the G7 has tried to do, and attempts have been made in the past, and it's really quite difficult to do. What the G7 have been saying is, is first of all, we need to work together because there is a fragmented uh, international tax system. And I'll just give you an example of the way in which a, a, a tech business might make the most of that. I don't want to say exploit because in a sense, tech businesses, like all businesses, their duty is to their shareholders to make sure that their costs are as low as legally as possible. Now, how could I do this? If I'm, if I'm a business where intellectual property is at the core of what I do, it's not manufacturing, it's IP. What I could do is I could set up a subsidiary in a low tax country and that subsidiary could own my brand. And then I could have further operating subsidiaries in other countries where I do most of my business and where I'm actually making a lot of money and where I, the, the, the tax rate is considerably higher. Now that subsidiary in the low tax country can charge the other subsidiaries for use of the brand. It's an internal charge, but what that does effectively is to move the profit from where it's generated, the high tax country, to move it across to the low tax country. And so the subsidiary that owns the brand and gets that income, that royalty income from the other parts of the group, it's paying a lower rate of tax than um, those operating subsidiaries would if that profit remained in those high tax countries. Now, that's perfectly legal. There's, there, that, that's what the law allows you to do. What the G7 have been saying is, look, we, we, we need to stitch this together so that we've got a single tax system across the world. We're not competing with each other to attract businesses by offering the lowest tax rate. And importantly, we are prepared to share with each other the tax take. And that's why I, I think this is a, a really interesting step forward. And if it means that businesses end up paying more tax as a result, well, that's, you know, if their business is making a lot of money, that's what I think generally people would like to see. So I guess I'm going to play devil's advocate slightly here because I completely agree with everything that's um, that's been said. I think um, having a fair system between what the government feels fair, what the people of, of a country feels fair and the the, the tech businesses could stomach because ultimately, you know, the world needs these tech businesses to do business, to innovate, to drive things forward and they don't want to be stifled too much. So there is ultimately kind of a, a compromise, however kind of politically minded you are and whatever, it doesn't matter so much. There needs to be some form of compromise that works for everyone and everyone feels is at least moderately fair. Um, but I, I do feel that these tech companies are going to have the best tax lawyers. Hopefully we've got a few lawyers that might be interested in going to tax in the, in the future and could become these top tax lawyers. Do you think that if new regulations came in, that they would be put to work and they would find maybe other ways to um, avoid legally again, paying uh, quite as much tax as, uh, as maybe the governments want them to? 
No, funny enough, I, 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 I don't think so for a couple of reasons. One, I think businesses these days are much more aware of the importance of reputation. And I, I think they want to be seen to be good corporate citizens. And the other thing is that um, and if you talk to companies about this, they, they say, and I think they're right, we, we always pay the tax that we're required to pay. Um, if governments want us to pay more, or if there are inadvertent loopholes, they need to change the rules accordingly. And certainly in the UK courts over the last 10, 20 years, UK courts have um, applied a, a, a more modern interpretation of tax law to say that, for example, if you introduce uh, steps into a transaction, the sole purpose of which is to reduce the tax bill and they have no commercial benefit, then they're going to be disregarded, which, which is absolutely right. So in a sense, I, I think it comes down to government. If tax law were clear, uh, companies would pay the right amount of tax and they themselves would spend less money and less time on tax advisors, which actually is what they want to do. So um, I, I don't think that uh, business deliberately tries to find a way of, of using um, you know, exploitable loopholes to reduce the tax take. I think businesses want to be seen to be paying what they're required to pay. But as I say, because they have duties to shareholders, they can't just volunteer to pay tax if actually at law they're not required to pay it. So I, I really see this as being incumbent on government to do something about. And there, there have been over the years uh, great attempts at tax simplification where governments have commissioned tax experts to advise on how to simplify tax. They put forward very good ideas and reports which are then completely ignored. Um, so I, I'm afraid government does not have a great record on helping itself by making the tax system simpler and in a sense fairer. Yeah, really interesting stuff there, Chris. Um, so yeah, so hopefully, hopefully, uh, governments uh, on this will 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 do maybe possibly a bit better and make it a little clearer because uh, I think uh, it feels like uh, we're getting somewhere. Hopefully, with the the G seven uh, summit, um, just to give a bit of context, the uh, the global tax deal that they were suggesting would um, impose a minimum of fifteen percent tax on profits of the big international tech companies. And I think over the next month they'll be um, heading off to the G twenty, obviously a bigger. A room full of uh, world leaders um, to uh, to see what they uh, have to say about it as well. So definitely keep up to date on that story. It will keep going on. You'll see it in the business headlines, probably even the front pages potentially um, as well over the coming few months. The third story that we are going to be talking about this week is all around commercial property. So you might have seen um, there's lots of headlines at the moment talking about private property. So where people live uh, booming at the moment. But as you can imagine, it's been quite a tricky time over the pandemic for commercial property, especially those sort of huge buildings where it's the gherkin, the shard or everything like that that you see um, in, in central London and across um, mainly our big cities. Um, across the UK. So obviously the pandemic has uh, meant that there's a huge shift um, to working remotely at the moment. 
Whereas we're starting to see, obviously, people starting to return to the office probably after the 19th of July, if we do open up um, fully then or close to fully uh, then as well. I'm sure we'll start seeing more people going back to the office. I think um, a few companies like Goldman Sachs have uh, put in uh, pretty rigorous plans to get people uh, back in, whereas some companies, I think uh, Mark Zuckerberg in Facebook was talking about um, the future of working remote and uh, Facebook employees being able to do it, or at least a large proportion. But I think we've definitely seen a shift away from um, the office, obviously during the pandemic, and now people are kind of reevaluating what they do with um, commercial property um, moving forward. But I think beyond that we wanted to talk and i know chris you want to talk a little bit around um how it actually works the kind of nuts and bolts of commercial property i guess who owns that commercial property um how it fits into the wider context of the of the business and financial world so i guess the starting point on this is around we see these huge buildings they have thousands upon thousands of people um in them especially in london other cities as well um but who who actually owns them? It's a really good question. And um, the, the answer is, is not terribly intuitive. They're actually owned by institutional investors. Uh, that's to say insurance companies, pension funds, um, fund managers, often, often from around the world. A lot of, a lot of um, commercial property in London, a lot of offices are actually owned by big institutions from, from around the world. And the reason they do this is because... Um, Commercial property is itself what, what's called an, an asset class. So uh, an asset class, if you're, if you're a professional investor, there are certain types of thing that you can invest in. So equities is one, that's shares. Bonds is another, commodities, private equity, cash, gold. All of these things are different asset classes. And what they help you do is diversify your portfolio. So protect it uh, against risk of any one of them doing badly. The others, if they're not uh, terribly correlated to that particular asset class, should, should do quite well. And property in that sense is a diversifier. It's a, separate, it's a separate asset class in its own right. And it's recognized as such all over the world. Great stuff. So generally, if a business is in an office, whether it's the full block or they've got a floor on, on an office or something like that, generally the business won't actually own it. It will let it, right? That's exactly right. And again, this may seem quite strange because you might think that the first thing a business wants to do is to own the offices that it's in, you know. But actually, the generally accepted business wisdom is as a business, unless you are in the property business, you should not own the office that you occupy. Uh, that's because businesses that do own their offices, they often find that is quite a constraint on expansion because they've got an asset that... Uh, you know, they're going to have to get rid of one way or another if they are going to um, expand the business and take on more people. But the other thing is that that property represents uh, money that could be used in the business itself to give it increased cash flow to, to help it invest. And so businesses that are in this position of owning their own premises, often what they will do is what's called a sale and leaseback. They sell the office to an institutional investor like an insurance company, and simultaneously they take a lease of that office. And actually, they don't have to move out to do that. The, at the, at the, at the, the moment when the sale and the lease back go through, 
nothing actually changes on the ground except that the ownership of the office has moved to the institutional investor and the business has moved from being an owner of the office to now being a tenant of that institutional investor. So very typically you've got me and you investing with an institutional investor. So the people's money, basically, or, or, or whatever it might be going into that institutional investor, they will own the, the property. They wouldn't cash buy it, would they? They would have some form of deal, which, uh, which, which means they're paying off um, a certain amount each month, each year. Is that correct? Yes. The, the interesting thing about commercial properties, it's very, very sensitive to interest rate changes. And that's because a lot of commercial property investors borrow uh, in order to, to do that. So they're borrowing at a cheaper rate, they hope, than the return that they will get from the building. And the return is a combination of the rent that you're going to get and the, the value of the building. And you hope that the value of the building will, will go up. But the thing about commercial property is that it's, it's a whole industry in its own right. So you get property advisors who tend to be surveyors. And I'm going to mention a few names just to kind of illustrate the landscape as it were so you get you get property advisors with names like Savills and, and Knight Frank and then you get property businesses that are developers so what they do is they they build new buildings and they take old buildings knock them down and redevelop them and certainly in the UK market the sort of businesses that do this are Helical and another one called Derwent London. So these names may not be particularly uh, familiar to you. And, and what, what they do is they tend to develop a building and then they sell it on to an institution investor and they use the proceeds to do it all over again. Um, and then of course the institution investors themselves will, will let those buildings to businesses. Um, institutional investors themselves do quite a bit of that. You know, they, they, they can develop uh, own and let buildings in their own right. So big insurers like Legal and General and Aviva, they also have property development uh, and property management arms. And you do get big businesses in their own right, which aren't, strictly speaking, institutional investors, but they do all of this. They, they, they buy land, they develop, they build buildings, they own them, they let them on. They might sell some buildings in order to buy others. And some of the names you find doing that are names like LandSec, which used to be called Land Securities. So there's LandSec, British Land, Great Portland Estates. So these, these are kind of property companies that are very much in the developing and owning um, area. And then you get, uh, and this kind of completes the picture, you get property companies that specialize in different things. So some property companies specialize in owning uh, uh, student accommodation. Some specialize in retail uh, and they haven't been doing very well uh, recently because of the double blow of, of the pandemic uh, and also uh, e-commerce. And, and big names in, in retail include Hammerson and uh, Intu. And also in central London, a company called Shaftesbury, which owns large parts of Covent Garden and Soho. And they're, what, what they're looking for is they're looking for anchor tenants. So in a shopping mall, you will look for a very big business uh, like, like Marks and Spencer, for example, to act as an anchor tenant. And then other businesses will come into that shopping mall because that big, big business is there. And that is attracting a lot of footfall, a lot of customers. 
And also in, in uh, retail property, you get things like turnover rents. So the rent that the tenant pays is tied to how much business it actually does. And, and you uh, recently, what's been happening is that tenants have been um, uh, essentially going to court and uh, getting agreements, uh, CVAs they're called, that enable them to defer paying rent. But just, just, what, just to, to, to give you one other example, which is a very interesting area of the property market, and this is big sheds. So a, a shed in property terms is a huge warehouse, usually at a, a motorway node, so where motorways intersect. And you'll see these if you drive around the Midlands, you'll see huge warehouses uh, uh, used by people like Amazon and the and the Royal Mail. And these, these sheds are required for e-commerce fulfillment. And there are businesses that specialize in building and owning these sheds. And again, just to give you some, some names, Tritax, Big Box, Seagro, uh, which used to be called Slower States, very famous name, Seagro, very much in this area. Urban Logistics is another one. And then London Metric. And, and just to give you a quirky example of commercial property ownership, you get companies that specialize in providing storage. So safe store, lock and store, big yellow. These are all names in the, in the, in the storage sector, which is part of commercial property. But if you like, it's, it's, a, it's a subsector in, in its own right. Yeah, I think, as you can probably imagine, um, over the last year, um, commercial property uh, rent takings have gone gone down, but it's expecting quite a big bounce back uh, this year, especially as uh, the second half of this year, as things open up and uh, companies work out what office space that they need to take. I think at the start of the pandemic, and this is getting more on the people side rather than the business side at the start of the pandemic, um, those first few few weeks of lockdown, the first was about 13 weeks of lockdown, I think people were really positive about working remotely i think there was kind of a we can get through this sort of mentality with with work and obviously we all got ourselves set up to work remotely but i think over time as you know we've had multiple different lockdowns and my sense of it and going into london sometimes uh, not always at the moment when i need to um is that London is, is getting busier and people will still want the office space. It'll be different office space to what it has been before. Um, hopefully for the, the, the grads and the core, I think it's going to be nicer kind of communal working and all that sort of stuff, the office space. But I still think it definitely has a, a huge part to play in, uh, in uh, both London's future and also uh, across, across the big cities. One last thing that I wanted to talk through was... Uh, whether we actually are potentially going to have too much commercial property. I think my view is that people come back to the office, but that's just my view. I don't know what you think, Chris, because I think in the UK we have about, of course, all property, including houses, everything like that, 13% commercial. Obviously, it's usually concentrated in certain areas of, of the UK, whereas housing's obviously everywhere. Do you think we've got too much office space now? Do you think this we're going to be start seeing lots of conversions into different sort of commercial property or even residential property? Really interesting question, Ben. Um, the, the, the first thing is that um, the property market is very flexible. One reason why businesses don't have to own their own office is because landlords these days, they treat their tenants as customers and they try to anticipate their likely demand and they talk to them about the office space that, that they require. Of course, Commercial landlords are in quite a strong position because when you're a business, you sign a lease that is likely to be at least five years long. And there may be a break clause in it, but when the pandemic hit, uh, 
businesses didn't just stop paying the rent. They're still required to pay the rent. But landlords that are that, that really understand their, their tenant customers, they will have been talking to them about what their likely space requirements are. And businesses can always sublet space that they don't need. So the provision of office space is actually quite flexible. And I, I, I personally don't think that uh, we're going to see the end of that. I mean, people have been predicting the death of the office for a long time now. For a long time, they've been saying that offices would just be places where people meet. But I, I think what the pandemic has shown us is that we are very good at working remotely. And I think that helps very much with the work-life balance, being able to work more from home. But we still need to meet our colleagues. If, if a business is to have any kind of corporate culture, then people need to actually meet. And as social animals, we like meeting the people that we work with. And that's why you know, businesses like Goldman Sachs have said, we need people back in the office. But in, interestingly here, there are providers of office space on a short-term basis. So uh, WeWork is one of them, but others include IWG, which is the old Regis business and, and workspace. And what they do is they buy buildings or take them on a long lease and they divide them up and let them on short leases. And increasingly, institutional investors are themselves beginning to do this. And one interesting quirk about this is that you might think that the, the sort of businesses that want these short-term lets are small startups, but actually very large businesses will often take this short let space so that they can bring project teams together outside their traditional offices. And those project teams can work for a short period, get the project done, and then they go back to head office as it were. Excellent. I think we are gonna leave that there. Hopefully it's given you a real insight into the um, commercial property. Of course, you'll be uh, going into offices in your early career. Um, most almost all companies still will have some form of office space and you know whether it's on a two or three days a, a week or four days a week or hot desking or whatever it might be um yeah we know i know that um from the work of brian network and all the research we do that um a lot of uh, grads still want to be back in the office and meeting their colleagues of course you would especially if you've uh, moved to a different place to uh, to do your work as as well so positive news for everyone that the office isn't going to go anywhere and i actually think um they might get a little nicer they might be redesigned a little better uh to to, to fit the modern world so hopefully you'll be going into brand spanking new refurbished offices which uh which will be uh, really awesome and really cool Excellent. So we always end, well, we did always end before we had um, a few members' questions, and we do want to go back to members' questions as well, but often we do end on a little fun um, end of the podcast story. Um, if you're not into football or Coca-Cola, um, maybe it's not going to be for you, but hopefully uh, you find it interesting because even if you haven't been following the football that much, you might have seen both in the, again, papers, business press, um, that... Um, Ronaldo's uh, Cristiano Ronaldo that is uh, caused a, a bit of a storm by uh, moving two Coca-Cola bottles about um, two foot or something like that under the table. Um, obviously, one thing that has been noted in the in the Euros is that there was uh, a lot of endorsement. So you might have seen in the first game if you watched it, there was a little uh, mini. Volkswagen that drove on the ball onto the pitch and then there's been you know various bottles at press conferences and loads of all of that sort of stuff and as you can imagine like these big businesses want to really get involved in um, 
in these big events be seen as really visible be really connected to something so so positive you might not like football and think that the euros is a complete waste of time but something so positive you know absolutely especially now that um we uh the tournament wasn't on we've been starved of things to do we've got this um sort of european tournament that we've just about managed to uh to get on through sort of covid restrictions and do all the things as well um but let's focus a bit more on the on the business side so um the day after Ronaldo did this. Um, Four billion um, got wiped off um, the uh, share price of or the value of Coca-Cola. Um, obviously, he is the biggest person on Instagram. He's just past 300 million uh, followers, uh, and he's obviously a huge, huge individual brand. Obviously, Coca-Cola being one of the biggest brands, uh, corporate brands in the world. Um, but Chris, you thought it was. Um, maybe not a bit of nonsense, but it was maybe overblown by, uh, by, the, by the business press about what actually happened and the impact that um, it had. I have to say I was pretty sceptical. I mean, the, uh, the four billion drop might sound quite a lot, but Coca-Cola's market uh, capitalization is 230 billion. And with any big business, you expected shares to go up or down maybe two, three percent on a daily basis. So I just saw that as a, a straightforward market fluctuation, which probably had very little to do with Ronaldo, because um, it's possible that day traders who move in and out of stocks within one trading day would try to exploit a pricing anomaly that arose because of that. But most uh, long-term institution investors would not have sold Coke um, for that reason. And one of the biggest investors in Coca-Cola is actually Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, one of the most famous investors in the world. And he certainly wouldn't have sold Coke. In fact, whenever there is a price fluctuation, he generally sees it as a chance to buy more of the stock more cheaply. So no, I, 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 I didn't think that in the real world, it really had that much of an impact at all. It does show that the, the markets sort of look towards the future, as we discussed on a previous story, but they still can be a little bit influenced by just sort of events like this, which the markets will even out again probably a few days later. I think that's right. I mean, I, I actually don't think that Coke's share price was influenced at all by this. Mm. Uh, I, I really don't. So that, that's, my, that's my rather uh, uh, unhelpful take on it. <laughs> no, well, I think like, there is something around this. Obviously, we've talking about Cristiano Ronaldo as the brand. He is an unbelievable athlete. I think we were talking about the Messi Ronaldo debate um, just now of who's better. And I've got my opinion. I'm not going to share them because uh, I don't want to get lots of hassle on uh, on our Instagram um, chat as as well. But he's an unbelievable fo footballer. But he is also a very shrewd, or at least people around him, I think him as well, um, very shrewd um, businessman as well. Given the commercial deals the the corporate deals that he he does and you know the the lifestyle he leads to mean that he is accessible for big brands to be associated with him feels like maybe a slightly strange move or, or do you think it was um savvy possibly people with uh his impact in the market it's a fine line because I suspect you want to be seen to be independent. Mm. You don't want to be seen to be enthralled to big business, even though you're earning a lot of money from it. But at the same time, you don't want to do anything that is going to upset corporate sponsors. So 
moving moving a bottle was probably you know within the scheme of things something that um on the one hand would appeal to his fans you know that's ronaldo being individualistic and and uh, you know not not kowtowing to big business but on the other hand uh coke probably weren't too unhappy after all we're talking about it now I completely agree. I think um, this idea that there's no such thing as bad publicity, I don't think is fully true. There is definitely such a thing as bad publicity, but a footballer moving moving a bottle isn't the the worst thing that can that can happen. And also, you know, it's happened a, a week ago. It's caused a, a storm, which is continuing. Like you still see it in the papers. There's articles on BBC. I know that uh, another footballer moved a, uh, a Heineken bottle. We're talking about that now as well. So there's another brand of uh, bottles that are being moved. And actually, if you think about it, like a um, a marketing opportunity to have a, a couple of bottles small bottles in in a uh in the corner of a screen while these big stars are are uh, talking in the press conferences probably not going to do a huge amount for uh for for your brand it's obviously the brand association you want to be placed there and you want to be placed everywhere as uh for like coca-cola and that's that's what they want to do they want to make sure that every time that you're kind of thirsty or thinking about a drink that isn't well it could be water or isn't water you're you're thinking about a, a coca-cola or Coca-Cola itself, or or, a, or an associated brand. So yeah, so I think they've seems to have done reasonably well out of out of all of it. We are continuing to talk about it. We're going to stop talking about it in a in a second. But I thought it was something quite interesting to to talk through that you can see this. And I think there is a, a point around this that the business press, the media, just generally, they can get into stories which maybe aren't really moving the dial really on in business and i think that is something to be really careful of within commercial awareness you will be preparing stuff for your interviews potentially you'll be thinking about going into the to the working world and deciding what's important to business and what actually moves that dial is is so important you might be asked to talk about a story you probably don't want to be talking about something which maybe the business world sees as reasonably insignificant just because it's picked up by the media. Anything Cristiano Ronaldo does or these big footballers will get picked up by the media, but it doesn't mean that it's a necessarily a really solid, strong commercial awareness story. Um, we've managed to get it back to business, which was uh, ideal. I thought we were just going to drift off into uh, talking about um, Harry Kane not scoring a goal. He might have done. To be honest with you, we've got the game with in the recording. We've done the three group stage games. So if you're listening to this and he's scored a hat-trick, um, great, fantastic, good stuff. Um, but uh, but as I say, um, yeah, fingers crossed. And uh, yeah, I know we have a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, listeners from across Europe. So if your team is still in it, um, best of luck. And hopefully we've added a little bit of business to, uh, to, to the football as, as well. So people that don't actually want to watch the football, you can get a bit of business insight into it anyway. Chris, it was a pleasure as always. Uh, did you enjoy this episode? Very much indeed. Very much, Ben. And I hope all our listeners have enjoyed it as well and found it, found it uh, of some use to them. Thank you so much to Chris there. Really fantastic insights. Hope you enjoyed it at home. I know that I got lots of useful information out of what Chris was saying um, to really improve my commercial awareness. If you are doing Internship Experience UK this month or just an internship this summer, um, hopefully it gives you that 
added bit of commercial knowledge going into your various work experience internships. That's exactly what we want to do on this podcast. Finally, do check out Instagram, LinkedIn. We've got lots of great stuff there around the podcast, lots of stuff to help you with your business knowledge. And lastly, from me, have a fantastic month, have a fantastic summer, and we'll be back next month.